Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Kevin Kosar, a resident scholar of the American Enterprise Institute and co-editor of the new book, Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. Kevin, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me on. So the first line of the book says Congress is overwhelmed. How so? Oh, in just about every respect. Um, this is an institution which has absolutely staggering responsibilities. Uh, many of them are in the Constitution. Uh, others simply exist out there. Take one data point. Presently, the executive branch has about 180 agencies each of which was created by statute at some point over the last 200 years, each of which needs funded, each of which needs oversight. Overseeing that many agencies with such diverse um, missions and responsibilities and institutional cultures within them, it's a staggeringly huge job, uh, which would require an immense amount of people power and systems and such which Congress, for the most part, just doesn't have. Yeah, you say that that its capacity has atrophied. Um, I mean, what, what do we actually even mean by congressional capacity? Uh, good question. I um, like to tell folks that they should think of Congress as an organization or a firm, if you will. And it has all sorts of responsibilities. There are all sorts of outputs expected of it. And it has to do those things, uh, a variety of resources. It has people, it has internal structures, it has internal processes, it has technology. And the aim here is to try to think about Congress as a firm or an institution and to compare the resources within it to the demands upon it. And when you do that, what you get is a, a picture that's quite out of balance. Yeah, because as, as you say, that firm, that institution is handling quite a lot of important aspects of life. The ability to collect taxes, regulate commerce, pay for the military, pass laws, uh, all the things that you mentioned in the introduction. I mean, we're not talking about trivial stuff here, are we? No, no. And uh, one of the more glaring uh, instances is the matter of war, foreign policy. Uh, you know, the Constitution says that Congress shall have the power to declare war. Of course, it hasn't done that in <laughs> close to a century. Um, and the conduct of foreign affairs and whether cruise missiles are being launched is something that Congress has next to no say over. And it's not clear that it is, for the most part, even capable of having a say of, you know, guiding America's diplomats. Um, to say nothing of you know thinking about where American troops should be and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's interesting that that that's a theme that you developed throughout the book. It, it, you say early on that that Congress certainly can't check and balance an executive branch to which it's delegated uh, so much power. I, I wonder if that is 
actually the case? I mean, for example, over the last few weeks, haven't we seen Congress checking the executive branch? And even on the foreign policy issues that uh, you mentioned there, when you think about something like Syria, didn't Congress have really quite a profound influence on uh, the Obama admin on the Obama administration on that question? Oh, yes, you're quite right. Um, you know, to be clear, the picture is not all uh, doom and gloom, uh, as some would have it. You know, I don't believe that Congress has just checked out and it's not achieving anything. Uh, it is achieving a great deal. But when you kind of look at its um, actions and outputs and compare that to what it should be doing, uh, that's where you find it lacking. Um, the instances where Congress has stood up on Syria uh, and other foreign policy issues, those seem to be the glaring exceptions to the rules. Those are the ones that show up in the headlines of, ah, the legislature has regained some of that Article I strength and is standing up to the imperial presidency. Um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, you just don't, don't read of those stories. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that you talk about not being negative. It's, it's actually one of the really refreshing things about this book, that uh, it isn't uh, an exercise in Congress bashing. In fact, it's the complete opposite, that uh, you believe quite strongly that people do need to make an affirmative case for increasing the capacity of Congress. As you point out at, at one stage, uh, it's probably the least loved um, branch of government. Um, that seems to me to be one of the aims of this book, to, uh, to, to make that affirmative case. Yes, thank you. Um, and I hope we do make that case uh, in, in the book, because, I mean, America is supposed to be a democratic republic. And uh, the heart of the system is the legislature. It's supposed to be the source for all lawmaking authority. It's also the, the space where uh, the American public is most connected to it. You know, there are elections every two years in the House, uh, which is astonishingly uh, rapid. Um, and your average individual can just write to Congress. You can tweet to Congress. You could reach out to your member. There are any number of ways that you can put your voice into the mix there so that the nation's pluralism uh, can be reflected in the priorities of government. Um, but, you know, our country has grown astonishingly over the last century. And, uh, you know, a continuous story is that while the world is moving on, Congress is becoming increasingly anachronistic because it just doesn't, on an ongoing basis, invest in its own ability to keep up. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point that comes through time and time again in the essays uh, in this book, how Congress has essentially been complicit in its own diminishing capacity, that it's been divesting itself uh, of its own resources since the 1980s. So in many ways, this is a, a, an example of institutional self-harm. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think it was something that any of the founders could have anticipated. Uh, James Madison you know, famously observed that uh, when you look at the history of, of legislatures, you know, they had a tendency to suck all powers into their impetuous vortex. And that was one of the arguments of why we couldn't go with unicameralism. We had to split the chambers and do some other things. Um, absolutely. I mean, Congress has full authority to reach into the Treasury and take as much money as it wants to run itself. It can organize itself um, 
entirely as it sees fit. It can do so many things that would affect its capacities, yet it's been extremely hesitant to do so. And that's a that's been true for at least 100 years. Yeah, it's very, it's very puzzling as, as we move through these essays that, you know, we, we see how Congress does actually have this all in its own hands. I mean, it decides its own budget. It has its own appropriations committee. So why don't they act? Well, there are at least two reasons, uh, one of which is that nobody in Congress is really in charge of the institution's well-being. You have you know, power fragmented in oh, a number of ways, split amongst committees and leadership, and et cetera. You have chamber leaders whose focus is primarily on the next election and moving policy along. And they tend to be happy with the way things already are. Or if the institution needs to change, they're going to want to try to sculpt it to suit their goals. And so one of the things we've seen in the last 50 years is increased hierarchy within the legislature. Um, you know, pick up a newspaper. If you want to know what's going on in Congress, you're probably going to find a story uh, that is basically the Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi story, focusing on the majority leader in the Senate and the head of the House of Representatives, or I guess Mitch is now former majority leader. That's the way it's characterized and not unsurprisingly because the resources and the control and the power have all flowed upward. Meanwhile, the rest of the chamber and its well-being has kind of atrophied. The second issue is that Congress, you know, individual legislators tend to worry about the optics of voting to increase the staff of the legislative branch, voting to increase the pay so you don't have staff turning over so rapidly. Um, put those together and it's kind of a formula for anachronism. Yeah, I thought it was one of the uh, really interesting contributions uh, from in the essay by Ruth Block Rubin that uh, where she says that Congress really needs procedural entrepreneurs, uh, those who seek innovation out of political self-interest. Um, I mean, do you see many of those emerging? I, I guess that having one of those run the Appropriations Committee uh, would be a good start. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um no, we don't see a whole lot of that, unfortunately. And um, when we do see it, uh, increasingly that sort of procedural entrepreneurialism has been um, devoted to increasingly partisan ends. Um, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, the rules of Congress, they don't have to be exactly analogous to chess, but they should be something set up in a way that there can be competition. And yes, if you're in the majority, you do have a reason to have the table tilted a little bit towards you. But we've gotten to a point now where the procedural entrepreneurialism that tends to go, go on is all towards strengthening the party, particularly in a hierarchized way. So right now, the big conversation is, are they getting rid of the filibuster? Well, why would individual members of the Senate want to do that? Uh, to serve a higher party goal so that whomever is in the majority at the moment can just ram through one policy after another without getting any minority votes. In the House, we saw this uh, recent adjustment by the Democrats of the motion to recommit. I won't get into the procedural uh, minutia there, but it involves the capacity of the minority to offer an amendment. That process was often being abused, so it's been nixed. 
So there's less opportunity for bipartisanship. So yeah, Ruth is quite right, but unfortunately we're just not seeing it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned chess there. In in some ways, we need a, a Netflix series like The Queen's Gambit, based on uh, based on Congress to generate some maybe generate some interest in uh, in these kind of topics. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. There is some degree of self knowledge here, isn't there? There's there's a committee for the modernization of Congress that uh, is currently looking into these uh, issues. Uh, how do you feel that they're getting on? Uh, I think they're doing quite well. Uh, not least because when they were set up um, a couple of years ago, they were only given one year to start and complete their work. And um, they did well enough that they were able to go to uh, House chamber leadership and say, up us for another year. And that happened. And then just uh, in December of 2020, they got re-upped for another two years. So they are certainly uh, beavering away in a very industrious way and they released something like 97 recommendations for upgrading the chamber. Um, many of these recommendations focused on various, I would call them annoyances within the House of Representatives. I mean, stuff that no sane person, if they walked into the building and looked at how things were being done, would say, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's these overlooked operational things which are maddening. Like, for example, um, the average congressional staffer who comes on gets no training. You come to your office, you show up, and you know you might get sent over to the Congressional Research Service to, to take a crash course on something. But otherwise, your training to serve the American public is entirely based upon whomever is in the office and whomever spends time training you, uh, which <laughs> that is anything but ideal. No private firm certainly would do that. And yet, I mean, you show in the book that when money is spent on these kind of things, on training, uh, but also on the on independent analysis and, and data collection, uh, the results are very good. Your own essay in the book actually talks about staff at the support agencies, such as the Congressional Budget Office. I mean, do you think that that's one of the areas where we really do need more capacity, these impartial civil servants? Oh, absolutely. Um, not least because the environment, environment on Capitol Hill is increasingly partisan and the whole media ecosystem around uh, Capitol Hill is in, extremely politicized and uh, there is this element of uh, uh, individuals choosing their own facts. Uh, and the legislative branch support agencies, yeah, they're a, they're a a real gem in the legislative branch. And I, I will confess bias. I worked at the Congressional Research Service for uh, 11 years before moving into the private sector think tank world. And um, yeah, it, they play a role in democracy that is little appreciated, which is they help amateurs govern. I mean, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you come down to Congress as a representative or as a, or as a staffer, you are faced with this massive job that you are really not prepared to deal with. $4.5 trillion government, 180 federal agencies, tens of thousands of pages of laws, hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations. Like, where do you start? Well, isn't it nice to be able to have somebody at Congressional Research Service or the Government Accountability Office or the CBO who doesn't have a thumb on the scale left or right just to be there, to give you good advice, 
to do analyses for you so that you then can make an independent judgment. That's what, the, that's what those agencies are for. And yes, they have atrophied over the last uh, 30 years. They have fewer people now than they did in 1990. I mean, that, that uh, um, diminution of expertise is one element. The other element that comes out strongly in the book is, is this sense that there don't really seem to be as many institutionalists today as there were in Congress. People uh, who respect the traditions and pass the traditions from uh, member to uh, from member to member. Um, it's very striking, actually, that uh, during the pandemic, I read Alan Drury's novel, Advice and Consent, uh, which mm. I hadn't read before, uh, which, as you know, was based on his experience as the Senate correspondence for the, uh, for in, in the 1950s. And it's very striking what a completely different world that is, as the the journalists know uh, all of the uh, know all of the senators. Uh, they mix to get the uh, different senators mixed together. Members of the public just wander into the building and talk to their uh, senators. It really is a completely different world. And those traditions, it seems to me, from reading your book, uh, have been, if not completely lost. Are, have almost dwindled to nothing within Congress. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, the difference between Drury's world and where we're at now is, is many, many miles. Um, yeah, like any organization, Congress needs to socialize its new members. And back in the days of uh, Alan Drury, we had Congress, which had um, a whole system for acclimating people for binding their behavior, showing them what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. Um, there was an apprentice system. Younger members of Congress were less active. They spoke less often. They spent more time listening and learning. And uh, that was a day when they would do that sort of thing within committees. It was a Congress where the policymaking and the oversight was done by the committees. They drove the institution. And the leadership's job was to basically facilitate that. Um, we're not there anymore. <laughs> Suffice to say, we're not there anymore. And it's, new, but, it, but, it, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, Barack Obama, when he was in the Senate, uh, famously found that whole atmosphere to be stifling, um, kind of a, almost a repressive uh, kind of environment. He apparently did not enjoy his time in the Senate. Of course, the man who's president of the United States now is somebody who is a respecter of the traditions of the Senate. I wonder if you feel mm -hmm. that uh, having Joe Biden in the White, White House is actually going to change the dynamic now between uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch of government. Uh, one hopes for some improvement, um, but you know, we shall see. Um, I think it's going to take an awful lot of work uh, by President Biden. Um, you know, he'd have to stand up something like a regular weekly, biweekly type meeting with chamber leadership and try to build trust because, uh, you know, the level of mistrust uh, in both chambers amongst the Democrats and Republicans is, is extraordinarily high. And this gets back to the issue of, you know, where are the institutionalists? You know, new people who flow into Congress these days, they are basically incentivized to be fundraisers and partisan warriors. Um, you know, the recent announcement of the retirement of Ohio Senator Rob Portman, um, who said, you know, look, I've been here a long time 
And uh, this place is just so partisan and it's so hard to get anything done. Um, so he's bailing, he's quitting. And uh, yeah, the institution's in a very tricky place. If you don't have people who care more about the institution than the party, then what you get is something that's kind of quasi-parliamentary uh, and existential levels of, of conflict. I thought that was actually one of the really interesting elements of the essay by Laurel Harbridge Young, actually, that, I mean, she shows that uh, the, this is not just about personalities, it's not even just about politics, that um, there is a direct correlation between bipartisanship in institutional structures and the kind of bipartisanship that perhaps we read more about in the newspapers uh, in terms of debates and, and lawmaking. So the kind of reforms that you're talking about and the structural elements really could not be more important. Yes, well, I, I certainly think so. I mean, I think there's a tendency when we look at Congress and the cast aspersions on it to think in terms of individuals. Well, this person's of good character and this person's a, a rat. Uh, or we think in terms of parties, like, oh, those Democrats are all crazy, or those Republicans are, are bizarre in extreme. You know, what, what we say in this book is like, you've got to look at the, the systems they play within, because politicians, much as it might offend the uh, popular sensibility, they are, to a degree, rational creatures. They will respond to incentives. And if you structure the institution in a way where the incentives lie in the direction of relentless conflict, well, no surprise if they should do that. If you structure it in a way that creates individual legislator buy-in in the policy making and oversight processes, you're going to see something a bit different. And, you know, again, in your in your own essay, you show that actually staff does make a difference in, in that kind of regard that, I mean, if committee staff are just simply divided on partisan, uh, on a partisan basis, that inevitably is going to feed through into the discussions. If somehow there was a way to make the staffing of those committees less partisan, you would probably have a more engaged and a more partisan um, conclusions to their reports. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and the another truth of Capitol Hill is that the functioning of committees is greatly dependent upon the, the staff, uh, because members are busy, they have other responsibilities. So committee staff, their job is full time to be committee staff. And absolutely, uh, it's really shameful that um, in the House of Representatives over the last 40 years that the number of committee staff have gone down. And it's also too bad that, you know, a forgotten fact is that back when Congress reorganized itself in the 1940s in a significant way, they actually added the reform that committee staff would have a core of nonpartisan people to help direct its work. And those nonpartisan people would actually partner with the legislative branch support agencies to do analysis on what policies are working, which ones are not, what agencies are performing, which ones need reformed. Uh, it, that was a, a very good plan, but Congress has gotten very far away from that. I mean, coming back to President Biden and, and particularly the notion of the, the bully pulpit of the of the presidency, I do wonder whether having him there speaking about unity, bipartisanship, whether that might have more effect on the tone in Congress and relations between the different branches than uh, perhaps we might expect. And I, I also wonder whether you think that the 50-50 divided, uh, divided nature of the 
the Senate might actually help in all of this, that everyone's focus is going to be on the Senate and people are going to be looking to senators who can work across the aisle and make a difference and, and get things done. Yes, yes. Well, uh, we'll say a bit darkly that the uh, there's an an irony in the fact that both uh, President Biden has called for unity, and there are people on the right who are calling for unity, but they're often spitting this word back and forth at one another um, over the issue of impeachment and and other other topics. Um, yeah, you would certainly hope that the narrow partisan majorities in both chambers, but especially the Senate, would lead to clearer heads uh, and an effort to look for win-win opportunities. And, um, you know, but it remains to see, be seen if that's going to happen. Uh, it's very troubling that, um, you know, we're deep into the first month of 2021 and the Senate still has not agreed on an organizing resolution to you know, decide who gets to lead certain committees. You know, <laughs> the, the, the two heads of the Senate are having a partisan spat over the rules just to get the place up and running. That's not a promising sign, but I'm hoping they will promptly work through it and that, yes, yes, we'll, we'll move forward. I wonder whether the uh, the Capitol building itself is a hindrance uh, in all of this, that, uh, as you point out in the book, everything is at capacity, every single inch of real estate uh, is taken. Um, why not build a new facility for a new century, perhaps even away from Washington? Um, the virus has shown us that we don't physically need to be in the same place to uh, make things work. It, is it time to stop uh, fiddling around the edges and to be uh, kind of much bolder about thinking how this legislature will function uh, in the 21st century? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, we, we need to think big, um, but we need to be cognizant of that doing big things immediately is probably not going to happen because there's just insufficient trust there. Um, so I favor uh, continuing with small ball uh, institutional reforms that kind of you know, get those going. And also in the course of getting those going, you develop positive trusting relationships within Congress to work together on these things. And then perhaps you can tackle the bigger things. But yes, um, absolutely. I mean, one of the ideas out there is the, that perhaps we should expand the House of Representatives. It's been fixed at, uh, you know, 535 voting members uh, or 435 voting members for a century. And obviously the U.S. population is, you know, quintupled, septupled, something astonishing like that, which leads to a dilution of individuals' representation in Congress. Um, but if you want to do that, of course, you're going to have to build some more buildings. And that gets back to the issue of the public optics and members it, of Congress does, being afraid. It, it, does, it does take us back to the founders, doesn't it? I mean, I know that obviously the United States was uh, much smaller uh, in the 18th century than it is in the 21st century. Nevertheless, they did think 
what are we going to do? We're going to build a brand new capital for this brand new, uh, brand new nation. That there was a boldness, there was a vision, uh, there was a sense of creating a new world um, for for a new kind of politics. May, as as I say, maybe we shouldn't just be. I think. Did you say um, small ball? Maybe we should actually be thinking about things in a in a spirit that actually echoes that of the founders, uh, rather than in nibbling around at the edges of actually this, the system and the uh, buildings that have worked very well for a couple of centuries. But, you know, maybe the time is ready for something, uh, something new. Oh, yes, yes. To be clear, uh, my feeling is pursue the small ball, but let's definitely talk about the <clears throat> larger, grander reforms. I mean, I myself have uh, been advocating that Congress basically do an internal reorg period. All these committees and the way that these committees are being staffed and the way that members find themselves running from one committee meeting to another committee meeting, you know, feeling like a dog trying to lick nine bones at once or something. Um, we got to do something about that stuff. And certainly, you know, my colleague at AEI, Yuval Levin, he's a big fan of uh, expanding the House of Representatives. And I think you're quite right. You know, the pandemic has shown that Congress can do some things remotely. So why not do more? Yes, it's it it is interesting that uh, at the at the end of the book uh, you talk about uh, Ever Everett Dirksen, who was a wartime and post-war member of both houses, and uh, incidentally the basis for one of those characters in in Drury's novel that we were talking about earlier. But you know he was complaining about the lack of capacity in Congress way back in 1942, and when he said that in 1942, he said this had, this had been going on for 20 years. So effectively, we're talking about a problem which has been going on for a century. Uh, what chance do you think there really is now of changing that narrative in a in a serious way? I think it's going to be a long haul. Um, you know, one of the problems with congressional reform in the past is that it was episodic. It was not an ongoing part of how the institution ran itself. Rather, you know, the Congress would just merrily go along. And then at some point they would say, my God, we've fallen into the ditch. And the executive has so just overwhelmed us. And they would have this spasm of reform. We saw that in the 40s, we saw that in the early 1970s. I call it Big Bang Reform. I think that Congress should have committees in both chambers, and preferably a joint committee, that is permanent. And their job is to continuously work on upgrading the agency so that it doesn't slip into gross anachronism. And we have this select committee right now, but unfortunately it's only in the House. But we should move to something bigger something that can spur continuous upgrades so that the legislature is, you know, looks better and functions better. And there is a there's an irony uh, in all of this, uh, of course, that, as you said earlier on, you're looking to make an affirmative case uh, for increasing congressional capacity. Um, and you push back uh, quite hard, or a number of the authors do, against those who say that Washington is broken. And yet, nevertheless, quite a lot of your analysis is that Washington is broken. Uh, so how, how do you square that circle? The public disenchantment, people who refer to Washington as a swamp, uh, who are tired of the, the 
inability of uh, Congress to get things moving, to break through the gridlock. How do you get past that to actually fix the things that you think are essential for the smooth running of democracy? Well, yeah, I appreciate the frustration that much of the country has with Congress. I mean, the the Gallup poll ratings of congressional approval uh, are very low, and they have been in a trough for many, many years. I appreciate that. Um, we can be angry at Congress, but to those who are angry at Congress, my question is, well, what do you want to do about it? Do you simply want to abolish it and just not have representative government? I don't think so. I think what you want is a Congress that works. Ah, so let's have that conversation. And Another thing I would add to that is that in the US, uh, as I imagine in, in, in most parts of the world, uh, the media focus tends to be on the negative. Congress passing a bill to improve the US park system and to uh, start working on overdue maintenance, that's a very valuable thing, but it's not going to run across the, as a top headline. If you ask the average American, you know, how many bills did Congress pass last year, they would have no clue because this stuff doesn't make news. It's not conflict. It's not, it's boring. Um, competent government is often boring government. And, you know, if it bleeds, it reads. And so there's a problem with that nexus between governance and the public's understanding of it that somebody has to figure out a way to fix because there are many things that are being done by Congress that are quite good, but nobody outside of Capitol Hill <laughs> tends to know about them, except for you know, lobbyists and those of us who get paid to pay, pay attention to these sorts of things. So it's a conundrum, but you know, if you believe in representative government, you gotta keep the faith. And uh, you know, we got good things going on in DC. Congress is not a complete failure, but it can do better. And let's uh, take the steps to make it do better. So the book is Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. It's edited by my guest, Kevin Kosa, with Timothy Lapira and Lee Drutman, and published by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, but for now, Kevin, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.